Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 147, my guests are Pierre Richard and Safedine Amus. Firstly, a word on behalf of the sponsors of the show. So Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. They offer a high quality platform. They have high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. They offer 24-7 support and sign up is really quick. Kraken also have Kraken Security Labs, which is really working hard to assure the safety of not just Kraken, but also other peers and other companies in the Bitcoin space. There is also Kraken Pro mobile app. Kraken Pro delivers all the security and features you love about the Kraken Exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for advanced Bitcoin trading on the go. You can find it on Google Play and Apple. Kraken also offer Kraken OTC Desk for those seeking more private, personalized service for large block trades of 100,000 USD or more. Kraken offer margin and futures, up to five times margin and up to 50 times futures. Kraken is one of the most liquid exchanges and also they offer the Crypto Watch platform, a popular charting and trading terminal. So go and sign up at kraken.com. Next up, this podcast is also brought to you by Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is a Bitcoin financial services company empowering customers with financial freedom and control. All their products and services are built on the foundation of multi-sig. So you can store your Bitcoins over the longer term in a two of three multi-signature vault. So you can hold two keys in that scenario and Unchained can act as the cosigner or as a backup key if you were to lose one of your keys. If you need to access liquidity, but you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, Unchained offer collateralized loans, which is a unique option. All Bitcoin is stored on-chain in dedicated multi-seek addresses and Bitcoin is never rehypothecated. You can also share in the security of your Bitcoin by holding one of three keys in that scenario. Make sure you check them out. They've got not just these services, but they're also releasing valuable content, open source tools such as Hermit and Caravan, which is a stateless multi-seek coordinator. I think you'll enjoy partnering with them. Go and check them out at unchained-capital.com. Next is CypherSafe. CypherSafe.io. They're producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you need a steel backup for your Bitcoin seed, right? If you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet or you've made a seed some other way and you've got, say, a BIP39 seed, the 12 or 24 words, you need to back that up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. So the Cypher Wheel, it comes in a wheel shape and it masks the words of your seed and it's actually got a padlock tamper evident seal so you know if it's been opened. So make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. So the order is actually going out now. So go and order yours at cyphersafe.io. So for this episode today, my guests, Pierre Richard and Safedine, I think they barely need an introduction, but just for the listeners who are not familiar, Pierre Richard is a well-known figure in the Bitcoin space. He's the host of the Noted Podcast. He's working at Kraken. Uh, he's also written many fantastic pieces at the Nakamoto Institute. And Safedine Amus, he is the author of The Bitcoin Standard. He previously appeared on episode 1 and 69, and Safedine is well known for speaking about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Uh, so this episode, we talk about savings technology and number go up. So we talk about some of these points around what's more economically relevant. And I think many of you will enjoy this episode because it's quite a common point of confusion. So hopefully this episode helps clarify some of those points. Pierre and Safedine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, Stefan. All right, so we are in Pierre's house, and uh, I was initially just going to record this just with Pierre, but Safedine was around, and obviously Safedine, more than welcome to join. I was really keen to hit this topic of savings technology. It is a very misunderstood uh, concept, and I think it ties in as well around this idea of what is a cash balance, and how has that been um, abused or changed in today's world. So do you want to open it up here? What, what is a cash balance, as the, as the Austrians would explain it? Yeah, so um, it, it really represents the, the non-use of a resource. And that, I think, is uh, the um, economic fundamentals of holding a cash balance. Um, and what it does is it builds into the economic system um, first of all, your uh, ability to impact prices in the marketplace is increased when you have a cash balance, which then allows for a reallocation of resources towards something. So one example would be like if there's a hurricane that happens, and so people spend down their cash balances that they were holding because they were holding those 
in anticipation of any kind of event, uh, any, and you hold it because of uncertainty uh, for unexpected events, which are going to be negative cash flows, um, you want to be in a position to be able to, um, in this case, rebuild after a hurricane. And so then when people are able to spend money on construction supplies, the cost, or sorry, the, the price of construction supplies goes up, and then the whole economic structure reallocates production towards this end because now we have an increased need for it in the real economy. Um, and so that's, the to me, the fundamental use of uh, holding a cash balance is to self-insure against uh, these kinds of unexpected, you know, economic events uh, that, that happen. And there's been like a deliberate policy on the part of central banks to uh, suppress that because they actually want people to uh, bring future consumption and investment forward uh, in time uh, so that it makes GDP number go up. And that's, uh, they get reelected and they, you know, have a popular mandate or whatever. And so... Um, it causes all sorts of it, it, it makes the economy much more fragile when people are holding a lot less cash than they otherwise would because this is why there's like financial panics essentially right is that um, there's not enough uh, cash in the system because people weren't making del deliberately they were making the decision not to hold it uh, instead they were invested in you know these pyramid schemes that were uh, built up by Wall Street Right, and so there is like an unsustainable uh, boom, right? And that's the theory. Uh, now, Pierre, I know you, you and Michael have been big on this. I've, I've been sharing that article a lot, which is that Hopper article, the yield for money held reconsidered, right? Which is like... Yeah, so this is like a very big debate within monetary economics is like, what is the utility of holding cash? And so this is where I hand it off to Saifanin. Yeah, I think um, obviously uh, I agree with you that uh, the utility of holding cash... Um, ultimately, the reason people need to hold cash is because of uncertainty. So if, if you knew, and Mises says this, I think, in human action, if you knew about all of your future expenses and when you would expect them, then you would never need to hold money. You would just time them in a way in which your income is immediately spent. But of course, we don't know the future, and the world is uncertain, and so that's why money is a useful technology to have. It's optionality. You're able to use it to... Um, to, to your advantage, whatever the future brings, whatever you want. But I think the other thing that uh, gets um, forgotten about this, uh, thanks to the um, all, all of the horrible Keynesian propaganda that is um, trotted out at universities and media, is the fact that savings is the uh, a precursor step to investment. Logically and um, in terms of financial planning and also conceptually, um, uh, even, at, even at a very primitive way of trying to understand how these concepts work, first thing that needs to happen before an investment takes place is you need to um, defer consumption. You need to s abstain from consuming resources that you could use to satisfy your needs now, but then you decide to defer the consumption until later, which frees up the resources from being consumed and then can have them utilized in um, investment. And so... At, at the very, you know, if we can think about it at the very simple level of uh, imagining uh, growing uh, grains, you know, you can, you first have to not eat the grains in order to uh, put them into the ground and grow more grains. So the saving is the first step toward investment. And um, the way that it would work in a in normal, healthy, free market economy is that the hardest asset gets chosen as money. People use it when they uh, want to provide for their future self. So when you've earned enough money that you can meet your needs, your most pressing needs right now, and can afford to start thinking about your future, then you resort to putting um, to, to, to storing value effectively in money. Effectively, it's a way for providing for your future self. And so the harder the money is, the better it is at transferring value to the future, the less the uncertainty associated with it in the future, the more you are likely to save, the more you are likely to prov uh, provide for the long run, and that in turn lowers your time preference. And then the more savings you have, the more consumption you've deferred, the more resources you have available for you to be able to engage in investment. And so 
Um, and, 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 and if we want to think about it in a sense of financial planning, you know, initially you save some money that is there always in the most liquid form in, in, in you know, four or six months expenses or one or two years expenses that you could always have uh, to fall back on um, in case you needed it. And then once you've had that secured, once you've been able to save up that amount, then you can have more money that you would then take and invest. That's money that you would then take risk on. So money is supposed to offer you no uh, yield. It's it, it offers no return. It offers you only um, uh, the ability to hold on to its value. So it has the least risk. It has no return, but it has the, it should at least have the re- least risk and the best ability to hold on to value into the future. So it's a way for you to hold on to value into the future rather than a way f- to take on risk, which is what investment is. So investment comes at a secondary stage. But in our com- current um, you know, GDP number go up obsessed economy, <laughs> we are obsessed with just bring number up, number up, number up. And so, of course, that you have the entire... Um, um, political and economic media industrial complex constantly haranguing you about the need to invest and invest and put your money out in uh, the financial system, which um, essentially makes it so that everybody needs to be investing in order to stay, uh, in order to hold on to their value. And um, it makes it so that the ability to save value into the future becomes something that requires significant amount of uh, expertise and market timing and following geopolitical events and so on. And, and that's just something that's not available for the majority of people who don't have the ability to do that. Either it's because they're too young or too old or you know they have other things to do with their life than keep following uh, MSNBC's latest round of uh, talking heads. I, I think that it leads to a, an effect where uh, there's a uh, stronger and stronger s- separation between um, the financing of companies and entrepreneurialism. And so um, the kind of the logical end of it is this index investing, uh, passive portfolio approach of like just invest without any kind of entrepreneurial calculation, right? You're just b- like putting money into a vehicle that, um, where y- you've given up on on life in a way. Uh, <laughs> but it, it that that I think has really happened because of what you were describing with um, in, in the fiat system being disincentivized from saving, um, if people saved more and then only invested in a way that was tightly coupled with entrepreneurialism, where they're starting their own company or they're investing in a friend's uh, successful company and it's like a much more um, like... Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not based on uh, tr- trying to passively make money essentially it's an active partnership type setup where equity makes more sense and at this point you know there's just strong separation in the uh, agent principal problem between management of companies and uh, shareholders where it's not even clear that like the returns that people talk about on the stock market obviously they've been very high because of fed pumping lately but uh, if you go back historically you know the the risk return uh, ratio is not attractive, especially when you compare it to Bitcoin. Mm, right, and look, bringing it back to Bitcoin as well, right? So this savings technology idea that I think Pierre, you're you, you've really done well to popularize that idea because yeah. I think sometimes people got it a little bit twisted in the past and they thought of it more like, oh, it's payments technology, and it is that also. It's just that they haven't. There's been a over, almost over focus on payments. Do you well, want to ex- uh, expand on that? Yeah, everyone's default Keynesian, right? Uh, and so uh, by default, they're going to be like, hey, this system needs to have utility with payments, and then that will drive demand, so then uh, you know, the, the number will go up. Uh, and that's kind of, that's the default basic approach to Bitcoin, right? Um, and when you read Satoshi and when you, like, I, I've written things that were like, if you kind of looked at it through the right angle and the right lens, you might be like, hey, Pierre's kind of making that argument as well. Um, and so then then there's the, the supply argument, right, which we can get into later. But um, I think that the, yeah, having the, the default Keynesian approach and then no one 
no one really thinks about savings anymore because the system has become so effective at uh, absorbing people's savings, right? So, like, now you get them. It started out with just, like, bank deposits, um, and then it became, like, money market funds. You know, like, now money market funds are guaranteed to be a dollar, and they're not going to break the buck. But really, like, the the amount of the financial system that's 100% reserve, essentially, because the U.S. Treasury will print as much, or, you know, the Fed will print as much, as many dollars as possible to guarantee, you've got the whole bond market, right? Like, and so the whole, to me, like, the whole bond market is part of the money supply because it's all would just instantly get monetized under any kind of stress scenario, uh, you know, QE style. Yeah, I think the the thing is that the uh, you know the, the promise of fiat money was that we could just keep um, stimulating the economy and making it grow faster, and numbers can all go up and everybody will be happier. And bailing out the fractional reserve. And bailing out the banks, of course, and doing all of those things, and you know, fighting wars abroad and bringing democracy to people all over the world, and um, doing all of these things that won't have any actual real cost. Because it's just, you know, from the magic Keynesian um, machine that just generates economic value by printing new money. But, of course, the real cost has always been, you know, either in the inflation or uh, the cost is reflected in the in the dropping of the value of the money. And so the way that they tried to con- fix that is initially to make it so that, you know, your checking account was guaranteed to be making money and that the government will guarantee your checking with something like the FDIC and that you'd be making 2 3 4% whatever which should compensate you for the inflation and so that way we get to have the free lunch of stimulating the economy with the keynesian voodoo but also not robbing people's bank accounts because hey you, you know you get your magic fdrc guaranteed 3 4 5% so essentially you know they they try to square that circle or they try to run this perpetual motion machine where we can have the it's a proof of stake system. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly like those shitcoin scams, and we can we can have the we we can have the f- um we we can have the inflation the benefits of the inflation without paying the costs. But that led to all of the uh, speculative activity from banking to go from the uh, narrow banking system to the shadow banking system, which effectively functioned as a casino w- without uh, explicit Federal Reserve guarantee which then had to become an explicit or i mean at this point it's not really explicit but it is um it's de facto it's a de facto guarantee from the federal reserve so now you know we've extended it to the point where essentially all of the shadow banking system is gambling with the same amount of money and it's just uh, you know you're constantly devaluing the money and offering people returns And 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 if this does work out in the sense of well maybe returns beat the devaluation in money I think what people are missing is a how much the money devaluation happening, uh, how much of the money's devaluation is happening outside the U.S. People all over the world who are holding U.S. dollars who are not intimately plugged into the Fed's uh, fountain of uh, printers and so are not getting that sweet Cantillon um, effect at the pro- at the uh, they, at they, they're probably paying fees to have an account open. They're not getting paid interest and with a free account. Yes, and also you know that also includes all the central banks that watch their dollars get devalued all over the world, and you know that devalues their national currencies. All of it is essentially. Um, um, you know, fueling all of these speculative bubbles, which the Fed has to guarantee. And so ultimately you look back and you say, we're running all of this circus uh, for number go up in order to keep up the pretense that inflationism works and to make sure that, you know, the value of the money doesn't drop. But all of that can be replaced with a hard monetary asset. None of these stupid games were being played under the war, uh, gold standard because the money itself held on to its value or appreciated by 1% or 2% every year. And that's fair. Uh, you know, the, the, Well, fair has nothing to do with it, but that's just what a free market provides. That's what people will figure out on a free market. They'll figure out that there's something could be a shiny yellow rock or it could be an orange digital coin but there's this something that is very hard to make and you know it allows you to store value into the future and have and expect it to appreciate slightly or to stay the same without much threat of its value going down because of inflation that revolutionary technology 
is called money. And if a startup were to be coming up with something like this that you know that just guarantees you the return without you having to finance a giant um, parasitical financial and military industrial complex to keep it running, I think that startup would make a killing. But fortunately, it's not a startup. Bitcoin <laughs> does it. <laughs> That's right. And so I think you know, with Bitcoin and this concept of savings technology and one thing that we can see over time is some of these other cases might get taken by, say, stablecoins, right? For example, if someone wants to just have purely fintech and payments technology, they could use, like, some stablecoin. But ultimately, what they're missing and what they can't get anywhere else is a money that is outside of that control, it, right? It's what I like to call the underlying technology behind Bitcoin. Number go up. <laughs> it's... Um People have thought that it was blockchain technology, but I think that's that, that was a nice camouflage. But really, the underlying technology of Bitcoin—that's it—is just the number go up. It's it's a, it's you know everything else can try to number go up, but they can't copy it because there'll always be an incentive for people to make more of it or more more like it. But the moment number go up starts happening for another coin they're going to find ways to create more and to somehow exactly you know create forks and whatnot and dilute it there's no, there's no coin that's going to be able to resist the political pressure that was put on governments to get off uh, the gold standard and uh, join the shitcoinery uh, circus right and it's, it's sort of like the julian simon argument of how if something is really demanded people will find a way to make more of it uh, but it's just that bitcoin has a way of resisting that tendency. And that, I think that's the way to maybe summarize yes, that it's, point. To be fair, it's the difficulty adjustment. That's the formal name of the number go up technology. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so let's bring it now to this concept. So Because now some people in... I guess there's different arguments to put around here. So some people might say, oh, look, but if, if it's constantly number go up, nobody will spend. And now that's one of the arguments that's going now about this idea of the so-called circular economy, right? Now, safety, I think it would be great for you to touch on this idea. Is the circular economy something that should be encouraged right now? Or is it more like people you know, can just hodl until they feel comfortable to spend? Generally, this notion that you need to spend because of some sort of obligation to the rest of the world is just ridiculous Keynesian nonsense. Um, you spend if you need to spend, if you think that the value of the thing that you get from the money is better than keeping that money for another day and then reconsidering. And that's a personal decision that, you know, every person needs to make on their own. And this is... Um, it's. It, I find it silly how people discuss it on the internet as if there's a position to be taken that you know you're either on the category, you're either on the side of people who think that you should be spending or the side of people who think that you shouldn't be spending. And the answer is you spend when you want to and it's your own choice. And you know that's kind of the point of what money is and what Bitcoin is. You decide based on your vision of what you expect to happen in the future and the uncertainty that you attach to it. You decide when you want to spend and when you don't w want to spend. And I think... Um, this is this is really ultimately what um, w how things will work, and this this notion that if we just sacrifice our own convenience by spending more Bitcoin and trying to go out of our way in order to uh, continuously replenish and spend, you're just essentially paying more fees to inconvenience yourself, and that's you know if if Bitcoin needed us to be doing these kinds of um, um, financial activism uh, in order for it to work well it's not going to work it's it's if it had to count on this it's not going to work and fortunately you know the number go up technology underlying bitcoin doesn't require <laughs> you to engage in these uh activities in order for the technology to work in fact what really matters is for bitcoin to continue to grow and succeed for me it's the issue is the size of the cash balance is what Pierre was mentioning earlier in Bitcoin needs to grow. And that's just the way in which people will start to spend more Bitcoin. At this point, about 0.1% of all the world's money supply or 0.2% of the world's money supply is in Bitcoin, which means that when you're trying to trade with somebody else, when you're trying to uh, exchange goods or services with somebody else, the chances that they also want to trade Bitcoin with you that they have a cash balance in Bitcoin that allows them to take um, that to, to take payment in Bitcoin or to make payment in Bitcoin is roughly in the order of 0.1 or 0.2%. And that's why it's m far more likely that when you want to transact, you'll be able to find people that are going to be 
wanting to transact with you in um, fiat currencies. And that's fine. That's just the economic reality that you need to deal with. And I, I think it's uh, it's really counterproductive if uh, Bitcoiners think that you know we need to preach and harangue to people, uh, harangue people to um, act against their economic interests for them to work. What needs to happen is that the size of those cash balances increase. And therefore, the possibility that you'll run across somebody else who's willing to spend Bitcoin or receive Bitcoin continues to increase. And um, that's just not something that can happen overnight. It's not something that can happen over 10 years. And it's incredible that in 10 years, we've gone to from zero to $150 billion of cash balances in Bitcoin worldwide. It's absolutely astonishing that people have made this much room in their cash balances so far in only 10 years. But, you know, it's going to take a lot of time for this to grow. I don't know how much time. And, um, you know, the, the way that it's going to increase is people growing those cash balances and having more chance to have um, trades where this liquidity, wh wh where they find people who also are able to trade with Bitcoin. That's ultimately what it's going to come down to, in my opinion. Well stated. Uh, Pierre, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I think that until the end, uh, the most liquidity is going to be between fiat currencies and Bitcoin and not between Bitcoin and goods and services. Um, and so until fiat currencies do collapse in the tail end of hyper-Bitcoinization. Uh, and so ahead of that, we want to be, uh, you know, first of all, scratching your own itch, right? Like I think that there's a lot of people who are intrinsically interested in understanding the uh, underlying blockchain technology and uh, enlightening and whatnot and wanting to contribute to that because they just find it interesting, you know, from the same way that people build, you know, Linux open source uh, software. Um, and I think that that also is good because when we're in this future state where, you know, we don't need the uh, legacy payment rails anymore, we want to be using a really robust open source system that caters to our needs as uh, consumers, right? Uh, and at that point, uh, we would be able to spend down our cash balances in the most uh, convenient and liquid way possible. Uh, and so that's why I think that... And the other part, though, over time is that there's a wealth effect, right? And so people who got in really early, and now their, their cash balance as a percentage of their balance sheet has grown to a percentage you know, of like 99%, right? And they're like, okay, I need to rebalance here because first of all, it would be nice if I had a little bit of a bigger house or uh, you know, go, go on a uh, vacation or whatever. Um, and so we're gonna see, and we have seen, uh, and journalists write about this as a negative of like, oh, uh, these uh, old hodlers, these whales, they dumped on retail in 2017, they dumped you know, $6 billion worth of Bitcoin or whatever it is. Uh, and to me, it's like, no, that, that's passing the baton. You know, like There's going to be successive waves of people who get in, and then eventually they're rebalancing and rotating out. Now, you know, hopefully not too much, otherwise they'll miss more upside. But that's just the way uh, marginal economics works, right? What's people's marginal propensity to consume and invest and save? Uh, and that's just an equation in, in everyone's brain that's uh, subjective. Yeah, exactly. And I think also the other side is that um, as Bitcoiners begin to interact with more and more Bitcoiners and the number of Bitcoiners increases, you're more likely to run into people who are already uh, Bitcoiners. And so particularly for people who work in the Bitcoin uh, space, um, who produce things related to Bitcoin. In my case, for instance, in my website, I accept Bitcoin because a lot of my uh, readers are, uh, and the people who buy my courses, a lot of these people are already Bitcoiners. And so it makes sense for them to uh, spend some of that coins. And so I, it makes sense for me to accept it. But I don't think it makes sense to uh, be evangelical and missionary about it. It'll make sense for somebody to spend their Bitcoin when it makes sense for them to spend their Bitcoin. Right. Yeah, and so I think one... Point. Oh, it's a um, safety and you've got to leave us. So, yes, uh, do you want to just quickly? Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, but do you want to just uh, shout out where uh, listeners can find you as well before we let you go? Um, Safedean.com is my website. It's where I try and keep all of my uh, focus and all of my work these days. So uh, now I'm offering courses in economics and Austrian economics. And uh, you can uh, buy some of the previous courses and uh, get some new ones. And also some of my research papers. And... Um, 
You can also find all of the translations of my book and where you can buy them from. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Thanks, Stefan. Cheers. And Thanks, thank you for hosting Dave. us, Pierre. Yeah, Cheers. sure thing. Come back. Thank you. Awesome. All right, so Pierre, we're carrying on with you. Uh, we've got another topic I was really keen to hit, and I think it would be good to touch on, which is obviously, not obviously, but stock to flow. Because there's been a lot of discussion online, you know, is it priced in, is it not priced in? But I think the first point as well is also just to discuss, obviously, if you're into Austrian economics, you're talking more about praxeological uh, application, deductive reasoning, and you're not necessarily as into uh, statistical understandings of economic law. But how do you square that circle in terms of it, you know, it not being... Uh, a, a deductive uh, reasoning around stock-to-flow modeling. Yeah, I think that um, the uh, Bitcoin BTC influencers have become a price cult. And uh, so they're taking this stock-to-flow forecast here and staking their reputations on hitting these lofty price targets over time based on some, you know, crank math. Uh, and uh, it's all going to fall apart very soon, very soon. Um, Now, more seriously, uh, I I think that um, to me the the interesting question really is like what – is it correlation or is it causation? And at this point, I I like the idea that it's correlation and that essentially you have uh, positive feedback loops that are all happening – pretty much simultaneously and so um because we are able to um because two of those feedback loop numbers are public right which is the price and the stock to flow that we're able to see this relationship if we were able to get other metrics as well um you know maybe people's uh price expectations right if we were able to extract that from people's brains of like where do you see the price going in the future um we would be able to see similar relationships but we're and it's actually it's one of bitcoin's fundamental properties that we can actually see one of those numbers which is the the stock to flow ratio right uh and so um that is also sets it apart from even gold right you can't see gold stock to flow ratio uh you can't you know see it for fiat certainly uh and so there's uh yeah it's it's kind of unique because people talk about also like oh because of bitcoin's public on-chain data we're able to do analytics on you know transactions that we weren't able to do before and uh yeah true but this so far quantitatively is like the most interesting one that's been found you know on-chain data yeah and the other interesting part is also not necessarily prediction but just trying to understand why has it been accurate up until now yeah i think that um even if the forecasts are wrong right and that um something the the correlation fundamentally breaks down and the parameters change and it destabilizes um you still would have 10 years of price history where there was that correlation. So you still actually have historical, like, and um, it's important to understand that uh, praxeology and history are different fields. And so when we're talking about quantitatively what has been the relationship between stock to flow and uh, Bitcoin's price, that's history. That's not praxeology. Um, And so there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, using publicly available data to run a regression and to see, you know, this this relation, statistical relationship, I don't see that contradicting Austrian economics because it's actually just it's it's completely in line with Austrian economics. Right. So let's split it up then a little bit. So if we were to say one part of this is praxeology, would we say would you say something like the idea that humans will chase towards the an asset with a high stock to flow ratio, maybe that's more on the praxeology side. And then the actual specific price numbers, that's more on like a, we're not dealing in praxeology in that field. That's more in relation to uh, analytics and modeling and prediction. Yeah. So I think so. And I think that the, um, you know, the, the praxeological approach 
I, you know, I, I think that there's, there's a lot we have not explained yet of, um, because this has never happened before, right? Like, uh, there was a lot of, uh, work done by scholars, uh, Austrian scholars explaining the transition and the breakdown of the gold standard to the present, you know, fully fiat world standard. And, uh, you know, Murray Rothbard wrote, you know, what has government done to our money? There's been lots written about this and, and analysis done of, you know, how, how did this happen by what, you know, uh, causal mechanisms. And so there hasn't been that scholarship for um, how, how is it that Bitcoin, you know, was able to grow in liquidity so quickly? Like, that's not something that has really been studied with stock to flow, you could almost argue that it really focused very much. It focuses very much so on the miners and how much are the miners selling. And I think Parabolic Trav may have commented on similar kinds of ideas around this. And he was saying it's almost like there's not necessarily a big, big whales that are out there selling lots of coins. Who are the people who have a lot of coins? It's miners. And then who are the people with a lot of expenses? It's it's miners. What's your take on that? And is that why stock to flow uh, potentially has been kind of accurate? Yeah, um, I I don't I don't have a view on it honestly because to me that's just too granular of like trying to figure out chicken and egg problems um, because there's so much uh, reflexivity and circularity in, in these causal mechanisms in Bitcoin because it's it's a self-balancing system and so um, I it's it's very hard to like isolate like to me what is actually driving um, whether it's the price or you know people's uh, educational process and this mind virus that is spreading among us like uh, you know it's it's I would argue that it has been, uh, way more uh, impactful than any virus uh, that's happened uh, in real life. Um, and uh, it's sticking around, you know? People, like, you don't see people being like, ah, I used to be interested in Bitcoin, but now I don't, I, I'm not into it anymore. Like, I lost interest. Uh, you see people who actually start out with very little interest in it, Right. And they're like, yeah, you know, my cousin told me to throw like 500 bucks at it. And now it's like 50 grand worth or something, you know, like, and then they get interested in it at that point. Um, and that's just going to continue to happen. Uh, and then there's, there's the underlying properties, right? Seizure resistance is huge. Censorship resistance is huge. Being permissionless. Um, and there's going to be a continued trend of deplatforming, right? So... Uh, by payment processors around the world for all sorts of different stuff. So that's going to continue to happen, uh, and that's going to drive also a lot of the transactional demand on it. Right, yeah. So it's almost like there's just too many different factors all at play. There's too many variables in the air that you can't really seize on one of them and say, okay, that's the most important one. Uh, and I think let's bring it back to one of your favorite topics, liquidity, right? So we can under one way to understand a potential money candidate, if you will, is how saleable, how marketable is it? And I think in modern parlance and finance parlance, we would know that as liquidity. So what's your view around that and how that develops over time? Yeah, so I think that um, it started, so Bitcoin's liquidity started at zero, right? And uh, Hal Finney uh, was the first participant, right, with uh, Satoshi. He's the first one to receive a transaction. I don't think he paid anything for it, but um, and it also, uh, you know, it was trading against the cost of electricity and compute at the time, um, and so uh, it, it started out nil and then built up from there, and I think that um, the the way that it was able to build up this liquidity is what Safedine was talking about earlier, which is that uh, the unforgeable costliness uh, that in, ensures its scarcity essentially and that's to me like the the what was driving the whole thing um what was the question again and i was also just uh, uh also interested to ask yeah. about 
your thoughts on where we are now with liquidity and we were talking uh, earlier offline yeah, yeah, yeah. compared to say yeah. this time in like 2015 and 16 yeah. where are we now today and then what, what's the reflection for the coming uh you know year or two so i i remember um having conversations about like how quickly financial institutions are going to get involved with bitcoin and uh now we have 600 million dollars being traded in 24 hours on, you know, regulated U.S., uh, you know, uh, commodities exchanges and futures. And so that's like, that, that's something that I would never have guessed as happening so soon uh, in Bitcoin. And people don't talk about it very much. It's like not really, but they don't understand the, yeah, the depth of uh, liquidity that now exists for Bitcoin. Um, and yes, the price moves around a lot for sure but um you're able to buy and sell in size at any point in time uh and not really move the price all that much uh and so i think that uh people who are managing a lot of money they're starting to actually see this as being big enough to pay attention to and that's why um people uh you know think that uh liquidity is um like a zero to one thing but really, it's a one-to-end thing, and so uh, the the network effect of it uh, is huge, and it's very. That's why the U.S. is able to abuse its position, right? That's why it's able to inflate so much, um, is because it has this tailwind behind it of having this uh, dominant network effect, uh, being the global reserve currency, um, and so uh, the same thing I think going to apply for Bitcoin as well. Right, as it builds over time. And do you think we're going to get really surprised to the upside in, say, a year or two if we hit another, you know, 2017? Um, I think that, yeah, I, I think that there's there still needs to be a lot of uh, more infrastructure in place um, before uh, we really start getting surprised by Bitcoin price movements. Uh, a lot has been built. Um, over the bear market and there's also you know on the technical side technical upgrades happening and uh there there, i've always been skeptical of this but you hear people talk about how segwit activation helped number go up uh in 2017 and i don't i personally don't buy it but uh i know that some argue that that's the case and so they think that like taproot is bullish uh (laughs) I don't subscribe to it, though. I just want to put it on the table. And look, from a lightning perspective, what are you most excited about? What are you most uh, keen to see happen? Yeah, well, so um, I guess this is both on-chain and lightning, but I I want to see on-chain fees go up. I want to see full blocks. I think that uh, Luke was right, and we should have lowered the block size limit, uh, the block weight limit. because right now, you know, it's one Satoshi per byte. It's not interesting. So um, I think that we would see more lightning adoption. Now, on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of developer work that is ongoing on lightning. And so maybe it's not ready for, you know, some kind of like mass market adoption just yet because there's still fundamental work that needs to be done. And, um, you know, Square Crypto is funding their lightning development kit. And so you can see that there's like... Uh, progress there and every time you look at you know the latest release of lnd or c lightning there's a long list of improvements that have occurred so that's just going to continue happening it might be fair to say we have to get to a point where the user most users don't really know whether they're spending you know bitcoin or lightning from their point of view it's just scan the qr and pay right yeah i mean you should have like three things on your screen your balance a send button and a receive button and that's, you know, that's all you should really like know or care about because that's all you're doing with money is you're just sending, receiving and holding it. Yeah. Uh, and it should also just kind of be like tightly integrated where if you're a small business owner, uh, you know, from your phone, you're able to connect to your BTC pay server in a very convenient manner to where like, you know, hey, if you if you've got a company expense that you're going to go pay for, you know, you can easily do it from your phone. Uh, so all these projects are just making leaps and bounds in terms of um, how easy they're going to make it to manage your UTXOs 
by building layers and layers of abstractions uh, and uh, yeah, it's just a lot of engineering work. Yeah, right. And we're starting to see that now with things like Phoenix, where the channel management is done in the background, or things like RTL. I know Suherb and mm-hmm. the team are looking to try and have loop in and loop out built into RTL so that the merchant can quickly manage the channels more easily as well. So I think these are some examples of multi-path payment as well that helps you route in a way without having to worry about in individual channels and just kind of route from your overall balance. Yeah, that's going to make it a lot more capital efficient. Something else I was thinking about on capital efficiency was um, I heard from someone that uh, one of the disadvantages of uh, Lightning is it's a it's like a prepaid system, right? And you've so you've got to put money in to to be able to move money around, and um, so their view was that it's a disadvantage because there's a cost of capital and there's an opportunity cost. And so thus, uh, you know, people are not going to want to use lightning and it's not going to be liquid enough. Um, but I, I think that that's like a, uh, inflationary fiat view of, uh, cash balance, right? Um, because it's okay to have a cash balance on lightning if you're going to have a higher cash balance anyway, because, your cash balance is increasing into purchasing power, not decreasing. Um, and so I think that that problem is probably overblown and that, uh, if anything, there's going to be an excess of coins in Lightning. And that's currently what we see, right? LN Big, like, there's there's uh, probably a disproportionate amount of capital. Um, now, maybe if, if it was more efficiently distributed, then we could have, you know, faster payment routing and fewer failures and whatnot. Um, But in any case, um, I I think that then when on-chain fees start going up, that's when it's going to get interesting. And uh, that's that's what I'm waiting for. Right. And I think it's it's a fair point you make because right now many people on Lightning, we're still not really doing Lightning channels and our fees on a arm's length basis, let's say. We're just kind of doing it in like a hobbyist way. And I think to your point, it's when Bitcoin on-chain fees rise that when that's when people will really start to actually account for that more. And so you can see some people now today, like someone like Alex Bosworth, right? He's probably got a more efficiently run node, which actually does make back some fee revenue compared to most other people because he's actually really actively managing it and balancing his channels and so on. Whereas the typical Lightning user today might not be doing all of those things or it's not automated enough. Is there anything else you're kind of excited for in in terms of the more Bitcoin world as opposed to like Lightning specifically? Yeah, um, I think that, uh, yeah, the part that I'm recently have found uh, to be fascinating is the idea of Bitcoin as collateral. And by no means am I the first person to, you know, uh, look at or think about this, but... Um, and there are companies that have built excellent products around it, including Kraken, right? At Kraken, you have margin trading. It's basically using Bitcoin as collateral. Um, and you've got uh, companies like BlockFi. Uh, people always bring up Celsius, although I don't like them because their CEO is a shit corner. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's um, Unchained Capital here in Austin as well, uh, where basically, because we're using Bitcoin as savings, and we're also living in this fiat world um, that uh, it makes sense to use your Bitcoin as collateral and borrow against it and leverage up because the interest that you're going to pay on the fiat is less than the purchasing power increase you're going to get on the Bitcoin over four years, let's say. Um, and so you essentially, you know, you're, you're part of the arbitrage going on between, you know, plan B's model and uh, the fiat banking system. Right. And let's put some numbers there. So, I mean, you might be paying, I don't know, 10% interest on the loan, but then if Bitcoin is returning 200% per year, you're well in the clear, right? Now, the problem is that you've got a, there's, there's a huge amount of risk there, right? Uh, and so the, the loan to value ratio matters when you start matters as well. Like if you start doing this in December 2017, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have a completely different result than if you start doing it in December 2018. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, and so I think that you've got to run like sensitivity analysis. And I don't think that there's been enough financial modeling around this uh, of people looking like, okay, back testing, like here's what would have been fairly safe and, you know, with, within uh, the standard deviations of whatever price returns, you know. Um, but then, you know, we're, so we're already seeing the, this uh, market for Bitcoin as collateral. Uh, and to me, that's part of the uh, speculative attack that's going to happen on the fiat financial system. Because um, I used to think that uh, the leverage would come from uh, other assets within the economy. So, for example, like George Soros would borrow against uh, treasuries he has in his portfolio and go buy Bitcoin. And he would borrow this from, you know, commercial banks. And so... Or, you know, in the case of the Fed, I think that there's like primary dealers that are hedge funds. And so they're ba they're financing their balance sheet with like uh, this this uh, anyway. So they, they can they can leverage up and buy Bitcoin and they're creating new money. They're creating like new base money by doing this. Uh, and this is what has happened in speculative attacks in the past. Um where basically the speculator will borrow in the weak currency to purchase the strong currency, and then that kind of has its own uh, negative cycle to it uh, until the issuer of the weak currency increases interest rates. And so it makes it more expensive to borrow the weak currency, uh, and that's what breaks the speculative attack. Now, the challenge is that you know, the harder the good currency is, the higher the interest rate you've got to go in order to break the speculative attack. So the the gamble for hyper Bitcoinization is, you know, or one of the open questions is, uh, you know, in this scenario, will interest rates go high enough to to save fiat currencies? And then that kind of goes into like John Nash, I think, has this world where this uh, very hard currency would uh, live side by side with fiat currencies. Um, so maybe it would constrain government monetary policy. Or we just live in an economy where there's no there's no USD and it's just Bitcoin, right? But it, the question, it's, the open question, is when we get there or if we get there, and, oh, so yeah. on, and we don't know that. Fifty years, hundred years, never. We'll see. We'll see, right? Uh, so look, I think that's probably a good spot to end it. But uh, make sure you shout out where can we find you online and Kraken, obviously. Yeah. So um, if you want to get paid in Bitcoin, uh, come see uh, the Kraken Careers page. Just search uh, Kraken Careers on Google. And you'll find it. Uh, we've got lots of open engineering positions, um, and you can work remotely and earn Bitcoin. So um, then if you're interested in trading, uh, if you're trading futures uh, in Europe, use Kraken Futures. And then if you're just trading spot uh, or available all over the world. So go check us out at Kraken.com. And follow me on Twitter at Pierre underscore Richard. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining me, Pierre. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. All right. So I hope you found that enjoyable and educational. Remember to share this episode with anyone you know who is confused about cash balances or this concept of savings technology. And as always, go to Stefan Levera for the transcript and the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.